0: Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier, I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through the June edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, This month we've decided to go with two reds and one white, and we're going to start Uh, with one of our Reds. We're going to jump right into sort of the most, uh, I guess, odd of our (laughs) selections for this month. Um, This is Joplin by Revel um, slash EB, I guess. Uh, This is a project run by our friend Tarek uh, out in Guelph in Ontario. We met up with them for the first time like four or five years ago while visiting Toronto, and we convinced him to drive up from Guelph to meet us for uh, you know, a couple pints of cider and uh, and, and hanging out and chatting. And uh, we've been working with them ever since. And this is the first time that we've actually brought their wines into the province instead of just their ciders. They do a lot of really cool... Wine cider hybrids, where they're fermenting um, or macerating grape skins in cider, for instance, or blending in finished wine into cider to add more complexity, um, add more depth, add more intensity of flavor—all these sort of things. So um, this is cool to see, you know, a hundred percent grape wine coming from Revel. Um, and their side project, which is which is E.B., which is sort of their wine brand, but they kind of go by both names nonetheless. Um, so this one's really interesting. Uh, firstly, it's grown in Ontario, which is um, a challenging wine region to grow grapes in for a lot of different reasons. The major one being uh, humidity makes it really hard to farm organically, which is why this wine is not farmed organically. They're using sustainable practices. Um, So not using things like glyphosate, uh, which are incredibly harmful to the environment, um, yet using, you know, leaving themselves the option to use uh, non-organic, you know, basically protection against... Uh, rot and mildew and all those sort of nasty things that happen in really humid environments. Uh, The other thing that's really challenging is obviously uh, the temperature. It gets really cold during the winter so a lot of the vines end up dying. I remember a handful of years ago It got so cold during the winter that essentially, uh, I can't remember what the percentage was, but a really high percentage of Cabernet Sauvignon, which does not like to grow in Ontario at all, and there's no reason for it to be planted there in my personal opinion, which is, again, only so valid, Uh, but most of it died. Uh, Basically, the trunks split because they're just not used to putting all their water into the roots um, the way that more cold hardy varieties can. They don't have the flexibility of trunk wood that some varieties have. And so what ultimately ends up happening is that that liquid in the trunk ends up freezing and splitting the actual trunks of the vines, essentially killing them. Um, So it's, you know, it's hard for that reason as well. So that leads us to uh, maybe the most interesting discussion of the day, which is hybrid grape varieties. So we have a handful of different Styles of grape variety available to us. Most of the grapes that you are familiar with are what are called vitis vinifera grape varieties. It's the European, um, you know, species of grapes. Um, it's Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Chardonnay, basically anything you can name as far as grape varieties go. Um, they, you know, have been selected over the course of, in some cases, thousands of years for certain flavor characteristics, disease resistance. High yields in some cases. Um, you're basically choosing them for, for certain characteristics that you really like. Then we have what we call grape crossings, which is when we're intentionally breeding two different Vitis vinifera grape varieties together. Um, you know, you see this with something like Pinotage being a really famous example where uh, you took Pinot Noir and Cinso and crossed them. Uh, artificially in a lab, you ended up liking the results of that crossing, and then ended up planting it, um, you know, especially in South Africa for pinotage, but there's plenty of other really great crossings as well. Um, The problem with crossings is that they're fairly unpredictable compared to most other species. Uh, It's really hard to... uh, Grape Grapes are essentially really genetically unstable. So even if you were to take the seeds from you know, Pinot Noir, for example, and plant them in the ground, what sprouts up from those seeds is not going to be Pinot Noir. You might get white grapes, you might get red grapes, you might get no grapes, you might get pink grapes. It might grow really well, it may grow really poorly, um, but it's not going to be the same thing that you just planted. Uh, it's not going to be Pinot Noir and so the way that you're coming up with new grape varieties is mostly through crossing and through this trial and error but because it is so challenging and so unpredictable um you know maybe you're trying to get the aromatic quality of one grape variety but the disease resistance of another quality uh of another grape variety and, and you cross them uh you're seldom getting the best of both worlds so it's really just trial and error but grapevines usually take three years to start producing fruit, five to ten years to start producing, you know, the top-notch quality fruit that you'd expect. Uh, and so this is really like the long con, like you're, you're really putting in a, a ton of effort in order to come up with these new grape varieties. Uh, the last version, which is the hybrids that we're talking about right now, are uh, essentially crossings of um grape varieties from two different species. So we have Vitis vinifera, and then a handful of others, mostly being the European or sorry, the uh, North American grape varieties. Um, these grape varieties are looked down upon. It's starting to become a real thing uh, where a lot of people in the wine industry are talking about the reasons why we historically have not liked North American grape varieties and how our palates are super Eurocentric, and there's no reason for us to dislike these grape varieties. They're just different than what we're used to. And so, you know, there's a handful that have developed a little bit of fame, but not really. And so the question becomes, you know, if these grape varieties, you know, like why would we use a hybrid, I guess is the first question. And the reason for that is that these North American grape varieties are uh, way hardier in a lot of cases than, Uh, the European grape varieties. They have more resistance to disease both in the soil but also in um, you know resistance to, to mildew and all these different things depending on the grape variety that you're choosing. Um, they're also often very winter hardy. Uh, some of these, these hybrids can survive down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is astonishingly cold for grape varieties. Uh, there's a reason why we don't have any planted in Alberta at the moment, at least not for commercial wine production, uh, and it's because they just can't survive in most cases. But some of these, these uh, North American grape varieties, and in particular the hybrids, uh, can survive really, really low temperatures. And not only that, but it's, again, if our whole goal is terroir, so this idea of capturing a sense of place, wouldn't it make sense in North America to be planting North American grapevines and seeing how they taste on the soil that they evolved in over the course of thousands of years? That's really exciting to me. And not only that, but we've talked about it before on this, on this podcast, but this idea that um, we really sort of have decided to go with this eurocentric palette where flavors that exist in european food and and history are the ones that are the most prized versus anything that's beyond that is considered faulty or weird or funky when really this this shouldn't be the case it's not being particularly inclusive especially if uh, a lot of people out there would find these flavors really enjoyable and so for us, you know, I was definitely on the bandwagon of like, oh, no, like, I've been told that hybrids are really bad. I had a bad version one time and then immediately thought, like, oh, these are all bad. These can't be good. I hate hybrids. And that was really close minded of me. Uh, in particular, I've said on numerous occasions that the grape variety that you're about to taste, uh, Marichelle Foch, was my least favorite grape variety on planet Earth and we should rip every single last vine up. Um, Again, incredibly close-minded of me. I had only had maybe two examples of it, and yet, okay, maybe a little bit more than that. But still, I hardly had any examples, and I was already writing it off as being bad, which is exactly what I want people not to do with a lot of the wines that we import, where it's like they've had one bad natural wine or one that didn't suit their palate, and they're like, cool, I'm never having natural wine. They're all terrible. And so I definitely don't want to... Again, be a be a hypocrite in that sense. So I, I wanted to open my eyes to these hybrid grape varieties, and now we're importing three different producers using hybrid grape varieties. Um, we're starting to see some producers in Europe actually plant. North American hybrid grape varieties because there are a certain subsect that are called the no-spray varieties. Um, you sometimes hear them called other things as well, but that's the, the term that I'm most familiar with. And these grape varieties are literally just resistant to any sort of vineyard pest, so you actually don't need to spray at all, whether organic or non-organic sprays. And so a lot of the natural producers that we work with, this is really interesting to them because it's the least amount of manipulation Uh, From humans you you're just putting the grapes, you know You're putting the vines in the ground and then you do not need to take care of them um, Other than you know, maybe a little bit of pruning maintenance here and there a little bit of soil work Um, But ultimately you're not adding things like sulfur and copper to the soil um, through these sprays So yeah, they're, they're very interesting. So in this case Again, digressing and then digressing on the digressing. Uh, This is made from Marichelle Foch, uh, a hybrid grape variety, uh, most planted in in Canada. Uh, You don't really see it anywhere else, although there are plantings in in the northern states um, and apparently some elsewhere in the world. Um, But this grape variety tends to be quite intense in flavor, with a very woodsy quality, um, sometimes a little bit her- herbal, sometimes kind of tobacco-y, uh, at least in my experience. Sometimes having almost that coffee note that uh, Pinotage is sort of infamous for. And um, it, I had only ever had it in like this really big, bold, um, sort of rich oaky style and I, I don't think it necessarily suits that grape that well for me maybe a comparison would be Cabernet Franc where you're trying to highlight some of the herbal um, characteristics of the grape variety so to see revels slash EB's uh, you know rendition of this that's you know, like 10% alcohol, first of all, versus the other versions that I've had have been like 13 and a half to 14% alcohol. Um, so it's got sort of this lighter footprint to it. It's got definitely higher acidity, no new oak. Um, and, you know, EB definitely has like a wild winemaking style, where they definitely sort of push the boundaries of, of um, things like volatile acidity, uh, That that sort of um, spicy, lifted note um, that you get from, from volatile acidity. They definitely push the boundaries of, of how much of that is tolerable in a wine. Uh, and, you know, again, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think in this wine, it's really, really cool. It sort of lifts up all these bassy um, sort of beetroot notes, uh, again, sort of like earthy some sort of like mushroomy characteristics, um, and then tons of fruit, like lots of like pomegranate, r- like really ripe raspberry. Um, so I think they've done an exceptional job of sort of highlighting what this grape variety can do. And it's funny talking to them, like they think that it's one of their favorite grape varieties. And so I really wanted to, again, open up people's eyes to an entirely different um I don't know, part of the wine world, I guess, with these hybrid grape varieties. So for those of you who are interested in trying other hybrid grape varieties, um, we just got in a shipment from Pinar Fee, which is a winery in Quebec that focuses not exclusively on hybrid grape varieties, but definitely um, they make quite a few different cuvées out of of hybrid grape varieties. Um, uh, Le Cresson is considered one of the best and one of the ones that I'm most excited about. It's an aromatic white grape variety that does really well with skin contact or a sparkling wine. So they do a a skin fermented slash orange wine version of Le Cressant. They have Frontenac Gris and Frontenac Noir. Um, you might end up having one of these things in your wine club next month, who knows? This is not foreshadowing at all. Uh, so either way, it's, uh, it's cool to get to try those. And then the last one, which should be here in a couple weeks now, and you'll maybe be the first people to know about it, is that we actually got an allocation from Grape Republic in Japan. Um, so these are um, hybrids that specifically do really well in the humid climates of Japan. Um, so those will be really interesting to try as well. Uh, great varieties like Niagara, which was conveniently uh, invented in on the Niagara Peninsula, roughly. Um, and so we'll get to we'll get to taste those together, hopefully in the near future as well. Really interesting. One of the reasons why people didn't like these for so long is that a lot of the a lot of these grape varieties had what was called a foxy characteristic, which again is literally what it sounds like. That sort of uh, like wet fur kind of quality to them. Luckily, most of the grape varieties that we have now, at least on a commercial level, do not have that foxiness necessarily. Um, They've realized that things like carbonic maceration limit the amount of foxiness. Uh, Selecting certain cultivars within those grape species are... Uh, for lower levels of foxiness is really cool. Um, And then you also have this really grapey quality. Like the wines made from hybrids often taste like grapes. They can have this sort of like bubblegum grape soda kind of quality to them, which again, if you come from a European wine background, you know, you're all about sort of these earthy, more subtle, sort of more nuanced flavors versus again, some of the the pet nats that we're getting from, from japan from grape republic are super fruity like outrageously fruity and that's some of the fun and again it's it's opening up uh the diversity of flavors that we can actually experience in wine and you know there are plenty of people out there who don't like wine uh because they've maybe only had what we would consider like a traditional style of wine and maybe they would be really excited about the flavor profiles and in, in something like this uh either way we got Barely enough for the wine club, so don't expect to get uh, too many bottles of E.B.'s uh, Marechal Foch named Joplin. Um, it, it's yeah, we we barely got enough. We had to ask the wine shops to like be really careful about not accidentally selling too many bottles before the wine club came out, so that they wouldn't actually run out. Uh, but again, it's it's a great excuse to get to try something super cool. Uh, So our second red wine is also from Canada. We kind of wanted to do like a little uh, East versus West side by side. It's definitely not a competition and the wines couldn't be more drastically different from one another. Um, But the second wine that we have is coming from the Naramata Bench in the Okanagan Valley, which is in BC. Um, The Okanagan is sort of like the most northern tip of the desert that runs through Washington essentially so we think a very dry climate that's influenced by the lake um, in the Okanagan the the lake is essentially a Uh, like a mitigating factor for really high levels of heat and really low temperatures during the winter. So you end up with this somewhat moderate climate. Anybody who's been there during the summer realizes that it gets up to, you know, 40 plus degrees in some cases. Um, But compared to how hot it would be without the lake, um, you know, it's definitely saving them, uh, you know, from, from, you know, being scorching hot. Uh, (laughs) So the producer that we're talking about today is going to be Daydreamer. Uh, I've really enjoyed these wines for for quite a long time, like eight years or something like that. Um, I first tasted them while I worked at Vine Arts and you know, sort of fell in love with this particular wine with the Amelia uh, Syrah. Uh, for me, it was always exactly what I wanted the Okanagan to be, which was a combination of really intense flavor uh, but not being heavy. I think that that's one of the things that we can do really well here. We have very strong diurnal shifts, meaning that it gets quite cold at night, quite hot during the day. This helps delay ripening and preserve acidity. Um, We have really extended sunshine hours because we're so much further north. If you think about California, um, you know, like they, they may be a lot further south and, you know, they're renowned for their sunshine, but because the sun goes down way later during the summer in the Okanagan than it does in uh, somewhere like California, they're actually getting as many, if not more, sunshine hours throughout a shorter growing season, which results in completely unique uh, like grape chemistry. Um, it's an entirely different environment for these grapes to survive in. And so you end up with flavors that are uniquely... Okanagan flavors. Not only that, but grapes are really uh, influenced by the things that grow around them. So if you're growing grapes next to a bunch of cherry trees, there's this weird thing that happens where it often tastes like cherries. Uh, or you have, you know, things like eucalyptus in um well, all over the world, but uh, most famously in Australia, you've seen things like their Shiraz that tends to have this eucalyptus characteristic. And it's because they're often grown next to eucalyptus trees. Uh, You see the same thing happening in in South America, in particular in Chile, with uh, a particular plant that's related to uh, like bay bay plants. Uh, So you end up with this sort of bay leafy, Spicy sort of smoky quality in a lot of those wines, um, and so you can be influenced by that. And for me, I find from the Okanagan uh, a lot of things like sage, and you know, you see a lot of, you know, probably what we would call prairie sage, but <laughs> a similar sage uh, that you're getting out in the in the Okanagan. And so I find you know these wines are always really unique because they have that sagey quality, and for me, that sage goes with certain grape varieties really, really well. Um, I think that it gets along really well with Cabernet Franc, for instance, because Cabernet Franc already has a herbal element to it. So it sort of just steers that herbal element towards like a sweet sage kind of quality. Uh, And in this case, Syrah. Um, I think Syrah, again, tastes best when it has a herbal element to it. You see this in the Northern Rhone, uh, as well as in some cases in the Southern Rhone. But we often uh, describe it as being like Garrigue, which is sort of a wild blend of things like sage and rosemary and lavender um all sort of growing together in these sort of scrubby bushy kind of low-lying areas and uh i think we have sort of a similar aromatic profile here uh in canada in the okanagan and so it's it's fun to sort of again experience those things through different lenses um this particular wine is made by Marcus, a uh, really phenomenal guy. Uh, definitely follow him on Instagram, he has the funniest rants. Um, he uh, is an MS, so he, he's done his Master Sommelier certification, which is wild. There's only a, you know a couple hundred people in the world who have ever passed that exam. And so this is wine being made in the Okanagan by somebody who is amongst the top percentile of most knowledgeable wine people in the world. He has a super diverse palate, has tasted things from all over the world, which is often the problem in the Okanagan is that uh, they get what they call valley palate, which is they only taste wines from the Okanagan Valley over and over and over again. So they're only comparing themselves to their neighbors. They're not looking globally for what the ceiling for quality can actually be. And so for Marcus to have this hugely diverse background of, of tasting um, is really phenomenal. Not only that, but he, he is Australian, so uh, he's intimately familiar with wines from, you know, the other side of the world as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that makes his wine so phenomenal is he really has this centered ideology of what wines are supposed to you know supposed to taste like from a classical perspective um, that's the one of the things that I like most about his wines is that they really are not weird they're not strange wines these are just really archetype perfectly created yet completely unique renditions of these archetypes um, so that again is is something that I really look forward to drinking all the time since we've gotten this wine in uh, it used to be imported by another importer but we're, we were fortunate enough to have them reach out and, and ask whether we'd be willing to sort of take over the reins and maybe do a, um, a better job of telling their story as far as organic farming um, and minimal intervention in the winery. So we're really stoked to, to be able to work with them. But I've drank so many bottles of this wine over the years. <laughs> uh, not only that, but one of our really good friends, Kurt, uh, used to be the sommelier at Teatro uh, for a period of time. Uh, used to buy some of our wines to put on the wine list at Teatro that you can actually still find um, on their list deep in their cellar, which is really cool, tasting back vintage stuff from Brock um, and from Gutogau and from Kindeli in one case. Um, so he put those wines on those lists back in the day and he is pursuing his, uh, his MS, his Master Sommelier certification. And so he decided that the best way of doing that was via mentorship from Marcus. And so he moved out to the Okanagan and works on the vineyard now. Uh, it's basically just the two of them, and their are three really adorable uh, baby doll sheep, um, as well as Rachel, Marcus's wife, who is, uh, who is again, probably uh, ultimately more important than, <laughs> than anybody else because uh, she definitely is the reason... Why these wines actually make it to us to a greater lesser degree so definitely shout out to uh to Rachel um but uh yeah Kurt basically you know uh between Marcus and Kurt like they're farming that little vineyard completely by hand it's super steep um it's right above the actual uh, Naramata village so if you're ever in the Okanagan it's definitely worth you know either driving up from Penticton uh, you know I always recommend that people stay in Penticton and not in Kelowna there's way it's way easier to get around from Penticton, and uh, there's way more cool wineries near Penticton. Um, or, you know, if you want like a, a super quaint getaway, you can actually stay in Aramata. Uh It's a it's a super tiny little sleepy town. There's a good pizza spot there, um, but ultimately you'll be pretty secluded, and it's it's nice and quiet compared to, you know, the rest of the the rest of the uh, the towns around the lake, I guess. Um, and so it's definitely. Definitely worth visiting. Uh, they do have a little tasting room as well, so so go visit them. But uh, their actual vineyard is planted on basically exposed granite. Uh, when you go there, it is like it's it's on a rock. Uh, it's really steep as well, especially in some places. Uh, the top of the vineyard itself is is very steep, and so they're farming everything by hand. Um, it's a lot of physical labor for them to farm this beautiful little vineyard, um, but ultimately it, it results in spectacular, spectacular wines. Um, other wines from them that are worth seeking out: definitely the Riesling. The Riesling is is um, super electric, really sort of green fruit, um, very aromatic, very piercing. Uh, it's a style that I really like. Not a ton of residual sugar on it either. Um, so it's not one of those super sweet Rieslings, but it definitely has just enough to sort of balance it. Um, that's like definitely a, a standout for me. Um, their cuvette called Rachel's Viognier is, again, absolutely, absolutely bonkers. It's, it's so, so good. Um, again, really aromatic, but in a totally different way than the Riesling is. It's very plush, very soft, very stone fruit, very jasmine, um, definitely richer, a little bit of oak influence here, a little higher alcohol, more viscosity. And so, you know, I'd say if you're seeking out any wines, uh, those two are definitely worth looking looking for from Daydreamer as well. Um, this actual wine also features a small amount of Viognier. So uh, the Amelia that we're that you have in the wine club, it's mostly Syrah with a little bit of Viognier, and it's not always super common to see red and white grapes uh, fermented together. But the interesting thing is that something about uh, white grapes—they actually help stabilize the color. Of red grapes uh, when you're co fermenting like this. So that's one of the influences. Uh, the other influence is that it adds some really interesting different flavor characteristics. So Syrah, again, often quite spicy, um, lots of, you know, blackberry, brambly berry characteristics, a peppery element. And then Viognier adds in this really Sort of compelling, like nectarine or peach pit quality to it, Um, this softness, this suppleness. So, this is sort of the ultimate combination of of those two things the really uh, sort of rustic qualities of Syrah with the richer, suppler qualities of Viognier. Uh, Definitely a really, really spectacular, again, combination. Uh, the last wine that we have in this club is one that I should have included in the club forever ago. I was looking back through my notes, and again, we've been doing this for, I think, over three years now, um, and I was completely astonished that I've never used Mein Klang's Veltliner. Mein Klang, one of our favorite wineries, uh, located just south of Vienna in the area called Bergenland, uh, on the New Seedler Sea, which is this sort of uh, shallow lake that they have in the region. Mineclang um, is is legendary for being a biodynamic producer. They do a lot of biodynamic training for other uh, wineries in the region. So if you're a winemaker who wants to learn how to grow your grapes biodynamically, you'd often do like stages or, or something along those lines at Mineclang. Um, they have Tons of resources when it comes to biodynamics, they have a lot of area, you know, 90% of their actual land is is not dedicated to growing grapes, but things like uh, wildland, things like growing grains, things like, um, uh, they have, there's a reason there's a cow on the label, uh, because they have lots and lots of cows, um, that help, again, provide them with organic manure, um, and just help create a more balanced ecosystem. The idea behind biodynamics is that you're creating, um, again, essentially a self-sustaining ecosystem, an ecosystem uh, like the forest or the prairies that doesn't need our help uh, in order to be healthy. You don't have to correct things in the forest. The, the forest is just happy to sort of grow on its own uh, to a greater or lesser degree, and that's essentially what they're doing. And animals are a huge part of that. Again, in all those ecosystems, you um, there's this balance between plant life, animal life, uh, you know, the microbes in the actual soil, and so they're trying to create vineyards that are in balance, the same way that you know the wilderness is in balance. Uh, and the liner in particular is one of the most universally appealing wines in the entire portfolio. Uh, I always call this, uh, you know, the in-law wine, uh, that idea that, you know, if you want to drink something that you're still going to enjoy, but you're going over to the in-laws for dinner, uh, this is a really great option because, you know, whether they're used to drinking, you know, Pinot Grigio or, or Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc, they will find this uh, equally delicious, not weird, they're not going to be like, oh, this is, this is too strange, these are flavors I'm unfamiliar with, but at the same time, if you're a wine geek and you have this wine, you can find all that complexity, all that balance, all that nuance, all that sense of place, that terroir that we really enjoy in wine, um, but again, wrapped up in this, this friendly package. Uh, it's easy to understand. It's not particularly cerebral wine. Uh, it's, it's, again, appealing. Um, so Veltliner, the grape variety that this is made from, um, is indigenous to Austria, and it's maybe the signature grape variety of Austria, especially from a white perspective. Um, you could argue that Blaufrankisch or Zweigelt on the red side, um, are again, equivalently famous, but from a production perspective, Grunerwaltliner, um, definitely leads the way, especially internationally. Um, gruner for me, has always been one of my favorite grape varieties. It ten- tends to have sort of a green herbal element to it, often, uh, for me, reminiscent of, um, again, things like sage, uh, things like um, green tea, you know, sort of those more green sort of herbal elements. Gruner actually means green. Uh, and that... Again, in theory, it doesn't refer to the wine itself. It refers to the fact that the vines are actually just very vigorous, so they grow a lot of green shoots, green leaves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but again, it just ironically translates to the actual flavor of the wine, almost like green peppercorns in some cases um, often has a, a spicy element to it. But this version is like the softer, more approachable version of that. Some of the ones from the Wachau, for instance, so in, in, more in northern Austria rather than this, um, is sort of in, again, essentially like eastern Austria. Um, but on the Wachau, you could get these wines that are, you know, 13.5% to 14.5% alcohol, super spicy, really umami, almost tasting like broth, um, versus this is, is way more light and fresh and delicate. Sorry, my voice is giving out on me. I uh, spent the weekend around a campfire and I can definitely feel it, but hopefully that's giving me the uh, a nice bassy quality, a nice rich raspiness to uh, <laughs> to this particular podcast. Um, the other reason I really like Grüner Liener is that it's incredibly parable. A lot of sommeliers think that Grüner Liener, pound for pound, is the most parable grape variety on the planet. It can deal with a lot of foods that are not wine friendly. Um, so things like asparagus, um, things like fiddleheads, things like artichoke. Uh, those particular sort of green vegetables really make wines taste sort of acrid. Um, they t- make them taste hard, bitter. Uh, and there's something about Grüner uh Again, there's, there's some sort of chemical reaction that's happening or some sort of (laughs) scientific explanation for why this works, but essentially it sort of neutralizes a lot of those again, sort of challenging to pair with qualities in those particular vegetables. So again, this time of year, I get really excited about asparagus and asparagus and Grunewaldliner is just, oh, it's such a magical pairing. Um, Things like, uh, again, this time of year, we're getting things like fresh garbanzo beans. Uh, Again, a really, really amazing pairing for this particular wine and this particular style of wine and this particular grape variety. So I definitely suggest going with, you know, some of those seasonal vegetables that we're we're all very excited about now. Um, Again, from a tasting note perspective, expect some green characteristics, but I actually find that this one has a beautiful floral, a beautiful peachy, sort of a more aromatic quality to it. Um, Almost, again, comparable to a dry Riesling, but a little bit softer, less piercing. Dry Riesling, especially at this particular alcohol percentage, is often quite sharp, uh, quite, I don't know, edgy, versus this is is got a little more softness to it, even though it is very bright and very juicy and very thirst quenching. Uh, you know, definitely, you know, get it ice cold and crush it on the, uh, the patio this week when it's 35 degrees on Wednesday in theory. Uh, definitely <laughs> worthwhile. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the extent of what I have to talk about today. We've kept it fairly uh, fairly simple today, hopefully. Uh, but if you have any questions about any of the wines, feel free to reach out to us. My email address is erik, erik, at juiceimports.com. If you've enjoyed uh, the podcast and the wine club, you know, one of the best things you can do to sort of help us is A, uh, send people the link to the wine club so that they can sign up for it, Uh, B, leave a review on, on Google in particular. That apparently helps us show up higher on the uh, the old search engines there. So that's always really helpful for us. Um, but yeah, we love hearing from you on Instagram and seeing your photos and things like that. So feel free to tag us. We're just at Juice Imports. We got plenty of really exciting things coming up over the next couple months. Uh, I've already pre-planned the next couple months because we've, uh, we ordered some of the wines for the wine club literally a year ago now, and they're just about to show up. And so it's going to be uh, incredibly exciting. In a couple months for the wine club so uh definitely stay tuned thanks so much for listening today we look forward to chatting with you soon and hopefully doing some uh outdoor tastings in the near future once uh things open up a little bit more so uh yeah that's it thanks again